The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Mark Erickson and Jan Fletcher two early North Face employees who made major impacts on the company during its early growth. We talk about breaking into the industry, key products they worked on, and life after TNF. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me today, Mark Erickson and Jan Fletcher. Thanks for joining me. Mark, the former VP of sales and marketing at the North Face, and Jan uh, really ran you know, production, uh, offshore production um, at the North Face as well. Um, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you both joining uh, today. It's great to see you. Fun to be here. Yeah, it was, um, it's, this is a conversation I've, I've wanted to have for a while. I know we've been in touch and, and going back and forth trying to schedule a time. So I'm glad that we could make it work. And um, everyone I've talked to has, has kept telling me, you need to talk to Mark and Jan. So schedule that, make that happen. So that, you know, Hap was the first and then Sally McCoy, um, both, both, you know, both affiliated with, with the North face just, you know, really kept pushing me to do this. So I'm glad that we could make it work. So, um, you know, I want to really just kind of dive into your involvement in the industry and specifically with the North face, but, uh, maybe step taking a step back. Um, when did both of you first, what was your first exposure to the outdoors? Um, and, and what was that first connection for you? When did the light bulb go off and you realized, oh, and the, you, you connected with the outdoors in that way? I think the first, my first exposure to the outdoors is when my mom took me home from the hospital and it was freezing cold outside in Hamilton, Ohio. <laughs> and I thought, wow, really? I'm going to go back inside. <laughs> now, um, I... When I, I, I guess when I think about this, aside from, you know, I was never a Boy Scout or anything like that, you know, as a high school kid or a grade school kid, I would pal around with my pals and we'd go out and, uh, you know, camp out by the creek and do Tom Sawyer-ish kind of things like that. But I think it was when I um, graduated from college and went to Northwestern University, I graduated there in 1969 and I'd been studying uh, radio, television, and film. Hmm. Which I'd originally thought maybe I'd be an actor, but then I had a dose of good sense hit me in the head and <laughs> I, I switched my major to radio, television, and film. Anyway, I uh, was there, there I was in Chicago or Evanston uh, and it was 1969, summer of 1969 and you know, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in the world, uh, Vietnam War protests, um, a general drift in, among the uh, youth culture towards uh, to get back to the land. There was this idea that we could 
ah, get the hell out of the city and we'll go up and we'll camp out in the mountains and that's where we'll live and we'll have communes and all that sort of thing. A very kind of a, you know, Edenic uh, uh, view of what life could be. And then I kind of stumbled on the North Face kind of by accident just because I was looking for a job. And I was so enthralled by what I saw there, what was going on there, that all of a sudden it really did kindle an interest for me in the outdoors and using this stuff, but also figuring out how it got made and how to make it. And uh, I, so I guess to answer your question a little bit more directly, I'd say my interest in in being outdoors, my first exposure to the outdoors industry was when I started at the North Face. Hmm. That's a great first exposure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in those days, and I'll, I'll send you this, uh, this balance sheet from 1968. Now that precedes, I started at the North Face in May of 1970. So, hmm. uh, but still, you know, it was just a very nascent stage. The company was a mere, you know, peanut compared to what it would eventually become. Right. Jan, what about you? Well, um, I, I always was a nature lover, but I didn't do much backpacking or camping when I was young. But I graduated from uh, Cal Berkeley in 74 with a, a degree in psychology, which was useless. So... Um, I just started looking for a job, and uh, Berkeley was really a hotbed of uh, outdoor companies. So I went to Class 5, uh, Sierra Designs. I went to all of them, and I happened upon the North Face, and I was sitting, uh, getting an interview as a receptionist, and the woman who was the receptionist did not return from lunch that day. She decided to stay with her boyfriend somewhere. So the woman who was interviewing me said, you've got the job. So <laughs> I got a job as a receptionist at the North Face. And, um, you know, it was uh, very exciting. And uh, I became, a, you know, a camper and a backpacker. But... Um, it was a very exciting place to work. It was small. Uh, you were able to get involved in a lot of different aspects of product design and the way the company worked. So I worked in customer service for, oh, I don't know. After receptionist, I worked in customer service for several years. Then I worked in the design department with Mark for a you know, I don't know, four or five years. And then I transitioned over into production. So anyway, um, it was, I was there from 74 until 88, I guess. Mm. And uh, I learned so much about the business and the product. And uh, I was very fortunate that I just happened to show up at the North Face that day. And um, it all worked out. Well, for, for both of you, um, what other companies, uh, you know, I, I kind of know some of the companies that, that were operating around that time, like, like you both said, this was a hotbed. Um, and in a previous episode, we talk about the hotspots of gear around the country and certainly Denver Boulder, 
um, you know, with, with Jerry and Holy Bar um, in the early days, Pacific Northwest, um, and, and then, you know, the, you know, in California, um, you, you have a lot of activity in various regions in the country or in the, in the state. Um, what were the other companies around that time? And, and what was it about the North Face that, that jumped out to both of you? Um, they were the only one that hired me, so actually. Uh, <laughs> did did you try? Did you did you go to some of the other companies? I went to Class Five, and Eustace Bauschinger himself said we aren't hiring, and sent me on my way. And There's another good guy to talk to, uh, Chase. If you if that yeah, he'd be that great. Yeah, up. yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then Sierra Designs, they were there. Um, Trying to remember, I wasn't that interested in retail, so um, I mainly went to the little shops that were there. I don't know about you, Mark. Did you try any others? I didn't try any of the other outdoor companies um, uh, because in you know spring of 1970, that predates Class Five, for example. They were around. In fact, it was Eustace Bauschinger that showed me how to use a pair of scissors. Mm-hmm. and how to thread a sewing machine. And uh, Sierra Designs was there, but again, in a very nascent stage. Ski Hut was there. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know that I was so aware of, of those companies. I had been, you know, kind of in a different world. I worked at a bookstore up on the campus. You know, then I did a stint as a bartender, and I got really tired of that. And so I just started kind of looking around for for another job, particularly in the section of town I was in down on San Pablo Avenue at that time. Um, so I had a bicycle and I would ride my bike up one street in Berkeley and I'd go down a block and I'd go back the other, on the next street down. And I would stop in any place that looked like it was a viable business. <laughs> and I don't know if you know that part of West Berkeley, but it's mostly houses. It's kind of little small cottagey type houses and very few businesses. And the businesses that are there are, oh, I don't know. I think there was maybe a glass shop and a welder and, um, you know, a plumber and that kind of stuff. But I finally, one day, I don't know exactly what, what it was, but I, I uh, rode my bike past his warehouse down on 4th Street, 1, 2, 3, 4, I'm sorry, 5th Street. 5th one, Street. Huh? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5th. Yeah, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5th Street. <laughs> and the warehouse doors were open. And so I looked in, and there was this noise emanating. It sounded like a bunch of birds chirping. And I looked in there, and there were all these billowing piles of nylon. And, you know, yellow and orange and blue and all this stuff. And and what it was, was the Chinese ladies sitting there sewing the products or trimming the loose threads off the finished products on the inspection table. And I said, wow, this, I, I want to work here. And so I kind of, you know, threw myself there on the front steps and uh, Jack Gilbert, who was the, uh, uh, number two guy there at the time, uh, he said, uh, no, no, we're not hiring. We don't, no, we don't need anybody. And as I, I said, Jack, I, I said, Mr. Gilbert, probably. I said, uh, I really want to work here. He said, well, I'm sorry. We just don't have any jobs right now. I said, okay, I'm going to come back. I went back 
every week for five weeks. And I got the same answer. On the sixth week, he said, oh, my God, you again? And he said, oh, geez, I'm tired of looking at you. So he gave me a broom and a pair of trimming scissors. And he said, if you're not using one of these, make sure you're using the other. Meaning, just go in there and keep yourself busy. And I said, well, uh, that sounds great, Mr. Gilbert. Um, what's the pay? And he said, I think I can start you at 250 an hour. And I said, 250 Really? Man, I'll take it. I, I, I took my last job, I was making $2 an hour. So I was in hog heaven from day one there, pretty much. And uh, without going on too long about that, I was just, I, again, I was just, just amazed by what I saw there, the level of activity and the, the, the humanity, the community that I could see going on there, plus this really cool product. I had only seen a goose down sleeping bag once before in my life. And that's when my older brother returned from a, uh, a trip to France. In those days, college kids in that era would take a, a summer off and figure out a way to hitchhike around Europe. And he'd, he'd gotten this uh, French down sleeping bag, duvet. And he brought that thing back. And I thought, that is just the strangest looking piece of gear I've ever seen. And then to come upon the, upon the North Face, and there were just piles of these things. And they're showing you know, how they could stuff them down into just a, like a tenth of its, its normal volume. And I, that just blew my mind. And so I was, I was hooked uh, from very early on. And um, one thing led to another. It, it is interesting that you have whole websites now, as we talked about Bruce Johnson, right? Talking about the history of gear. So I, I can't imagine you're the only one who feels this, feels drawn to, to product, right? Um, and, and it's hard to explain why that is, right? Why you can look at a sleeping bag and say, that is really cool, right? Even like you said, yeah. you hadn't had really any experience with um, it, you know, the product prior to that. But for both of you, what do you think that is? What What is it about product that that you know has drawn you in or kept you involved in that industry for for such a long time? Well, uh, you know, I when I started uh, very soon after I started um, the whole oval intention, that whole. Uh, product category started to be developed and I just found the whole creative process so interesting I wasn't involved in design at the time but if you were at the North Face you were involved because it was so small and um, I just remember the you know the excitement of you know researching different materials and um, you know, looking at prototypes, and uh, so I just, I was very drawn to the product side of things at that point, and, um, and became interested in the gear side of it rather than the, rather than the clothing side, even though clothing became such a big part of, you know, later business, but uh, I just love the energy around the creative activity involved in the product to me it was about uh i don't know maybe the process of putting things together you know taking some raw materials 
and creating something out of it. And, you know, I guess it's, it's the, the act of creation itself that was fascinating to me. And every single step of it, they'd have, they'd, uh, Jack would, you know, put me in charge of cutting webbing strips for the backpacks over a hot wire, you know. I'm sitting there breathing all these nylon fumes, happy as I could be. Figuring out the length they needed to be, and then I started to think, you know, if this thing was a couple inches longer, we'd be able to do this. I started to put two and two together and think about ways the product could be enhanced or improved. And that was a great stimulus for me. And I should say at this time, I mean, I was just a single guy. I didn't have any, I didn't have a wife and kids I had to, you know, take care of. I was just kind of footloose and fancy free. So I'd go in there, you know, before the shift started in the morning, I wouldn't leave till eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. I, I was just, I, I just loved every, uh, every part of it. But it was the making of and the figuring out how to transform materials and make them do something that, you know, they're just inert materials laying on a table. I think another thing that kind of fascinated me uh, was the, uh, how, uh, the sewing process and how one sewed something together. How does a machine work? How do you thread a machine? And, and so I would be looking over the, sh- the shoulders of the sewing machine operators, and then sure enough, the machine would break. Oh, Mr. Erickson, could you please call somebody? I said, well, let me take a look at it and see. So I I gradually kind of, with the help of these Chinese sewing machine operators, started to figure out how you, I became a sewing machine mechanic. I'd never been a sewing machine mechanic before, but to this day, I can adjust the timing on a sewing machine and, you know, and figure out why the, 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 uh, stitches skipping and adjust the tension and all that kind of stuff. It, that, that story, it, it just makes me think of, I, I had a really good conversation. We, I recorded one of these with Jim and Greg Thompson um, as yeah, well and talked good. with them about wilderness experience as well as kind of this, this, their second act, right? All the other things that they went on to do. Um, yeah. But I believe it was Greg that, that told me how he started getting into making and how he, I can't remember, I, I had this recorded, but um, I think he ended up buying a sewing machine, a broken one, and tore it apart. And he had his Jack Daniels there and he'd, yeah. he'd, he'd you know, take it apart. And if he couldn't figure it out, he'd, he'd take a shot and then, you know, take something else apart um, and take another shot. And, and he just, by taking apart the equipment and putting it back to, you know, he couldn't get it back together. He had to go back to the, the, uh, wherever the, the repair, um, yeah, well, you know, he, he bought it from, down. right. Um, he had to take it back in, in, uh, pieces and they helped him put it back together. But, um, there's something about machines and getting involved in the making and that tactile experience that I think draws people in. And it, it reminds me of, uh, we have one of our, our, our students from our first graduating class, um, she told me one time her, how she got into product design. Uh, she was on a backpacking trip and for hours was looking at the, the person's back in front of her um, and staring at that backpack and kind of having this realization that someone made that, right? Someone yeah. had to design that and pattern it out and, and sew it together. And, and that was kind of her awakening uh, when it came to people get paid to do that. Someone makes these <laughs> things. Um, right. 
and that that led her to our program eventually, and, and now she's she's working in the industry doing it herself, which is is amazing. Um, so I there's something there's something to that. Make a note here of, the, of another great attraction for me to working for the North Face at that time was that in the warehouse right next to the North Face was the rehearsal studio for Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh wow. Which at that time, this would have been 1970, 71, right in there. They were bigger than the Beatles. Mm. And they were preparing to go on a European tour. And so they would roll up because it was hot. And they would roll up their warehouse door and start cranking Proud Mary and all these Greens Clearwater hats. And I thought we were all dancing in the aisles and just having a great time. And so that was part of it. You know, I guess what I'm getting at, it's not so much Credence Clearwater per se, but this idea of community, the idea that you're in some place where stuff is happening and it's exciting stuff. Is it going to change the world? We don't know, but it's really, it seems like it's going to change the world. And here we are right, you know, practically ground zero for that. And that was a very big uh, motivator uh, for me. Well, Hap mentioned that that was the goal, right? It's like, we want to make product that changes the world. So it seems like that, yeah. that, uh, that came across to, to the employees. Yeah. That, that was part of the culture and you felt that. Um, so, you know, we, so you were kind of just, both of you were kind of just working these, in, you know, these, um, you just had these first jobs. You, you were doing whatever you could do to get into the industry, which is something I still recommend to students. It's absolutely do whatever right. you can, right? It's like sweep the floors, just get in. We, there's, there's someone that we know, not in our program, but works for one of our partner companies. He would just job shadow at, at a footwear brand. He was a graphic designer and he would go to this company and just be there and observe one day a week. And then eventually they just said, well, while you're here, you might as well do something, right? Get to work. Um, So that principle still stands, right? Like that's still, that's still an opportunity. But when, when did you both get the opportunity to transition into maybe more into what you'd be doing longer term, like actually working with the product? I know Mark, you were, you were, you know, in production. So you were working with the product, but when did you make that transition to design and Jan, same for you. Uh, I can make that transition like from yesterday. reception to working with product. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was late in the day. I think it was a Friday afternoon. And I was down uh, puttering around. I think I was uh, cleaning up. We'd cut a stack of ripstop nylon to make sleeping bags. And I think I was cleaning up the, the table after that. And uh, Eustace, who was my boss at that time, went upstairs up on the, uh, the mezzanine level of the, of the building there where all the, where Hap's office was. And it was quiet. Everybody else had gone home for the day. And all of a sudden I hear this loud argument happening. These guys yelling at each other. And I thought, gee whiz, I, I was completely flummoxed. I didn't know <laughs> what to think. And the next thing I know is, uh, Eustace is bounding down the stairs, followed by Hap. And, uh, you know, Eustace is saying, I quit. And Hap is saying, you can't quit. I'm going to fire you. <laughs> no, I quit. No, I'm firing you. And, and then Eustace was gone. And um, I, I take that back. There was another fellow there, a guy by the name of Mike Revisa. And he'd been in on this argument. And it was clear that Mike and Hap had decided that Eustace had to go. 
uh, for whatever reason. You'd have to ask Eustace about that, but or Hap. Well, Hap will tell you. He'll, he'll tell I'll you. I'll have to ask both. But I'll let him tell you, not me. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, this guy Mike came down afterwards, and the dust had kind of settled a little bit, and I'm sitting there kind of still shaking, wondering what just happened to my boss. And Mike says, Mark, kind of put his uh, shoulder hand on my shoulder, he says, oh, would you like to be the North Face designer? And I said, geez, I, I, I don't know. I, I said, can I have the weekend to think about it? <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, I should have just leaped up and down and said, absolutely, sign me up. I said, no, let me think about it over the weekend. Well, needless to say, Monday morning I came in and uh, I, was, I was raring to go. I was all ready to go. And that was how I became the, des the designer at the North Face. Why me? Beside the fact that I was the only guy around at that hour, uh, I think I was one of the few people that knew where the paper patterns were stored for the sleeping bags and the, uh, the outerwear, and the, you know, all of it. Because it was all on craft paper in those days. You didn't have computer patterns. And, uh, you know, we had these patterns stuffed all over the place, and nobody really knew <laughs> where they were except Eustace. And he kept that stuff very close to his, his chest, but I knew where they were. And so I think that was uh, perhaps my, uh, my, uh, the deciding qualification in my, in my favor. <laughs> Jan, what, what was that transition oh, like for you? My story isn't nearly as interesting. I, um, you know, I started as a receptionist and then went on to customer service. And, you know, the North Face at that time um, was, it was very, it was small. And um, it was growing at the time. So there were a lot of jobs becoming available within the company. And I have to credit HAP and I suppose the rest of the management at the North Face giving me a chance to uh, work in the design department, for instance. I, I'd been in customer service for a few years and a job opened up over in design. I had no background in that, but go ahead, try it. And um, so I worked there for several years um, managing the processes in the design department. I didn't do any actual designing, but I, um, I helped with the um, preparation of designs for production and interfaced with engineering, which are things that I enjoy. So um, I, I just had so many opportunities to get involved in so many aspects of the company. Anyway, so, uh, so I worked in design for, for uh, several years and then I got involved in production and uh, making these products that we've been working on in design and making sure that we could produce them. So anyway, that's, that's how I got involved in design. You know, Jan made a comment there that is probably worth uh, elaborating on a little bit, which is uh, it's a credit to Hap that he saw in the likes of me or Jan or really any number of people I can uh, think of, you know, uh, contemporaries at that time. He saw something there. So it, it wasn't that you had to come in with a resume and, uh, 
you know, a bunch of degrees and a bunch of prior experience, even any particular expertise. But if he saw something like me, I suppose, I'd like to think he saw this drive and just this sheer enthusiasm. And at least I knew how to put two and two together. You know, I wasn't a total klutz when it came to, uh, to that sort of thing. Uh, and he gave people a chance and an opportunity. And in doing so, he created this special little place and a time and place that changed, obviously, dramatically over time. But I can, I could, there's a lot of folks there at that time who would say the same thing that, uh, you know, they said, well, perhaps just ask me to do it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing uh, in a leader uh, to be able to, you know, kind of look beyond just the surface of a person's resume uh, uh, or uh, first impressions and find something deeper there, find some, some uh, to be able to mine whatever commitment is inside that person and then to turn it to productive use. It's a, it's a great leadership skill. Yeah, they promoted from within uh, almost always. Very few, uh, you know, people were hired from to come in and run departments. They were usually kind of brought up from the bottom and, um, which had its uh, which had its pluses and minuses, you know. I mean, we weren't all geniuses, and there were no. some things for which, uh, uh, you know, we probably weren't particularly well qualified. And there should have been somebody uh, who came in from the outside. So it wasn't that it was just this wellspring of genius, uh, just you know, dripping off the the rafters. On the other hand, when it, you know people from the outside would come in to assume positions, particularly if they got the job over you then the whole vibe started to change. And now we had, for one of a better word, politics, I suppose, mm -hmm. entering into the picture. Mm -hmm. That's that's another story. Right. Um, when, when did you two first meet? At the North Face. Yeah. Uh, when, when would that have been? Was it when, Jan, you went into design? 1974, when I showed up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know Jan before she started. So I must have been working there for three years already, almost four years. Right. So, yep. And then, I, you know, I'm curious what, you know, for both of you, um, and I guess for, for Mark, when you took over design, um, what, what were the big sellers, you know, leading up to you taking over and then, we can get into, you know, where do you start as the new lead designer for the North Face, you know, from there. But, but yeah. what, what was the North Face really producing at that time? What, what uh, they were producing, uh, probably the number one seller was the Sierra Parka, mm -hmm. which, as I think probably everybody knows, was one of the very first goose down filled parkas. And there's a funny story about that. Because when I finally pulled the patterns out of the closet and laid them out on the laid them out on the table to get ready to cut some Sierra Parkas, I realized that the neck opening on the size small was bigger than the neck opening on the size extra large. Now I thought, well, that's screwy. Why is that? And once I looked into it, I saw what was going on. Uh, 
It turns out the fellow who we used models, human beings, <laughs> he didn't have a, you know, well, right. metric charts and all that kind of stuff to figure out sizing. So there, there was a guy who worked in the shipping department. I swear he couldn't have been more than five feet, two inches tall and built like a fire plug. Oh, he had a neck like this. He was the model for the size small Sierra Park. On the other hand, Jack Gilbert, who stands six foot six, Jan, or a pretty damn close to it, you know, he was a beanpole, so his neck was tiny. He was the model for the extra large. And that's the way I said, oh, my God, that's, we're going to have to fix that right away. <laughs> anyway, Sierra Park, despite the goofy sizing, uh, that was probably the big seller. There were um, the... Uh, a really popular sleeping bag at that time was the Unimog. And that was a rectangular bag. And that was cool because you could, you know, it was a full zip. So you could, you could kind of pancake one on top of the other. And then you and your sweetheart could, could sleep together in the same sleeping bag, as it were. Very popular, very popular uh, thing to do in camping in those days. Uh, the, there were tents. There were a couple of tents. One was a Sierra tent. No, wait, I'm sorry. The Tuolumne, what we call the T-tent, the Tuolumne tent. A-frame in front and an I-pole in back. That was the our lightweight tent at that time. And that still came in at, you know, I want to say five or six pounds or something like that. Uh, I, there was a mountain tent that was a double A-frame tent. Uh, those were big sellers. Uh, the Unimog sleeping bag. We didn't have any fiber-filled sleeping bags in those days. We had a a backpack called the Ruth Sack. And that was named after a guy named Gordon Ruth, R-U-T-H. I never met Gordon Ruth. I don't know to this day who that is. All I know is this pack was called the Ruth Sack. Hmm. And that was uh, a very early version of an internal frame pack. And, um, you know, I think we had a guide pack and we had a day pack. We had the day pack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. So when you when you started uh, well when you started to lead the de design where do you go from there you inherit a design uh, all of the design for the North Face and all of these past products where do you go from there what was kind of the the first order of business well you um, you start getting input you know from others notably the sales reps. You say, oh, geez, I wish I had a lighter weight tent I could sell in my ter territory. I could sell the heck. If we added three more, three or four more colors to the Sierra Parka, blah, 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 blah. And so that's one source of input. And, uh, you know, the other is some, you know, rudimentary sales analysis of what was selling and what wasn't. And, uh, you know, then you go to the repair department and say, what's working, what's failing, what seems to be holding together, what needs to be corrected. And so those are your, those are your, probably your key inputs. I look back on some of the things that I have to, I'll have to take credit for or blame one or the other for being ideas that I had about product. And I was so fortunate to be able, again, you know, there wasn't a lot of, oh, no, don't do this, don't do that. Go ahead, try it, man. Let's try it. Let's put it together, see if it works, see what happens. Let's run up the flagpole. And so there were uh, a number of things like that uh, that um, I was able to, you know, prototype and then actually made it into the line. The, one of the first ones of those was a tent called the Morning Glory. Hmm. 
And that was, uh, if you've ever seen any pictures of that, that was kind of a big A-frame, central A-frame, and then two eye poles at the end. So it was the idea of making a four-person tent uh, as light as we could, of course. And this is pre-geodesics. Mm-hmm. And so what I basically, the brainchild, it wasn't really a brainchild, what I did is take two of what we called the, the T-tents, the Tuolumne tents, and I put them together face-to-face. Uh, and, uh, you know, conceptually, at least. And uh, that became the Morning Glory, which was our first four-person tent. And, uh, you know, on and on and on from there. Right. Well, on, on the topic of tents, we, we should talk about the Oval Intention, um, yeah. for sure, and, and kind of the origins of that and, and, and the different players that were involved. It seems like there's a few core people, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, well, well maybe I can tee, tee up the conversation. It seems like a lot was happening in the tent space, um, kind of leading up to this moment. Um, and we, we did a whole episode, me and Bruce Johnson, kind of about the evolution of tents. And like you said, that the A-frame was the dominant tent for how you know for decades yeah. um there's no no real variation the Civil War. so yeah really that since the pup tents right um and it, it seemed like bruce and i kind of talked about uh, you know jack stevenson's tunnel tent um you know the elliptical art was yeah. really you know the game changer there um yeah. and, and a lot of that was driven by material changes right material innovation um and his outsider kind of perspective, right? Coming with an engineering background and really thinking about aerodynamics and materials and, and right. bringing things from other industries um, into that. So um, that, that, that's before, you know, 75, of course, but it seems like that's, you know, you start to see some changes and, and a lot of this is driven by materials of the time, I, I imagine. But um, from your perspective, what, what kind of led to this moment? I know there's a few different factors and a few different individuals, but um, if you don't mind sharing kind of the, the story of, of, of that tent, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, let me preface it by saying, at least to my way of thinking, there wasn't so much innovation in materials mm. at that time. I know at the North Face, we had three basic materials. We had 1.9-ounce ripstop nylon. And we had that in three colors. No, a fourth color, Acapulco gold, the yellow. Uh, we had 420 denier pack cloth, three colors green, orange, navy. We had um, a urethane-coated nylon, taffeta, that we used for the cagoules. And so there was this interchangeability, uh, transferability of these basic materials, whether it was a pack, a tent, a sleeping bag, they're all made out of the same materials. Hmm. So... The uh, you know, later on, we, we get into some material innovations, but I've always been had kind of a jaundiced view about that. Uh, actually, uh, I think that um, uh, the industry still is uh, largely based on a few basic uh, fibers, a few basic technologies. And mm. there are, you know, I'm sure that somebody can say, oh, what about Primaloft? Or, oh, what about this? But uh, I, I think it's smaller universe of material innovation than a larger one myself rather i again maybe i'm just uh, congratulating myself on being able to figure out how to use you know a fabric that you use for a 
down jacket and how do you make a tent out of it? <laughs> but anyway, the, the Orville Intention, um, Bruce Hamilton is a name that you're no doubt uh, familiar with. Perhaps you've talked to him already. If you haven't. Not yet. I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, you must. <clears throat> Bruce was a guy who um, uh, came to the North Face in a lot of this, in, in some ways the same way I did, which is he just kind of stumbled upon the place. And he was, uh, you know, a guy from back east. He'd been down, he'd gone to Vanderbilt, I think. And he was a math whiz. And, uh, but he was, he had hair down to his, his uh, waist. And he was just a hippie that was looking for a good time, as we all were in Berkeley in those days. And he and I actually shared, uh, well, we lived in two different flats. He and his posse lived on the top floor, and I lived on the, on the bottom floor on 8th Street. And that's another whole side story. But anyway, uh, I introduced Bruce to the North Face. And he got hired on first as a, what we called a downer. And which is kind of a funny name, <laughs> even in those days. But it was the guy who pumped the goose down into this uh, goose down sleeping bags. And so it was a, uh, you don't want to hear about that job. Anyway, Bruce did that. Uh, just to make some money. And, you know, uh, finally, uh, he obviously had an interest in uh, math. He was, I'd call him a Buckminster Fuller acolyte. And in that he had read anything, everything and anything that Bucky Fuller had ever uttered or had written and was very interested in geodesics. And that was about it. Now along comes a guy named Bob Gillis. And Bob Gillis, um, uh, you, you're nodding your head, so you must have heard about this guy. I, I've, I've actually talked with his daughter a little bit um, from Shelter Systems. I know that she yeah, ran the company for a time. And yeah. um, I know he's, he's still around, but it sounds like he's not, not in great health. But Oh, that's a shame. I haven't, I haven't kept in touch with him. Uh, Anyway, Bob came to the North Face with his invention, which was, uh, I'd have to say, it's kind of a precursor to the Oval Intention in some ways. And it was little more than a square piece of coated nylon with a crisscross pattern of fiberglass wands that were tethered to the square piece of nylon with O-rings. And... He, so he came up to the office one day. I remember he pulled up in his Volkswagen van and the little girl who published his daughter <laughs> was, uh, she tumbled out of the van. She couldn't have been more than three years old at that. Anyway, he proceeds to kind of insert these rods in this big piece of nylon and he kind of squishes it all together and pegs it down to the ground somehow and says, see, here it is. Isn't this brilliant? <laughs> and, uh, I know Bruce and I were looking at it and thinking, hmm, not so much. Hap, gosh darn that guy Hap, he saw, he saw something there. And so he engaged uh, uh, Bob, and uh, I don't know what the, what the terms of the thing were, but, but Bob started working with us and collaborating with us. That didn't last very long. Uh, and the history there is... Uh, uh, a little foggy in my mind here at the second, but I could probably um, figure out what had gone on there exactly. But as I recall, his association, we, we started going in a different direction. 
partly because Bruce said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we do this in geodesics, we're going to get a much more efficient structure. And it's producible, you know, it's not just a square piece of nylon with, at any rate, we started, we kind of went off on our own tangent. Partly, I suppose, because well, we know more than this guy Bob Gillis knows. And partly because we thought we had a better idea. And Bruce understood the geodesics. He didn't know anything about cutting fabric or sewing the pieces of fabric together. That's where I came in. And so we made a good team. And uh, I remember we had a back room. At the, by now, the factory had moved up to Harrison Street and, or uh, Gilman Street, 1011 Gilman Street. And we had a little uh, design room back there. And we started putting together just these shapes and eventually, uh, you know, that what came out of that was the Oval Intention, which is the first uh, of our geodesic tents. There was another uh, competitive force. You mentioned some of the other uh, brands and their efforts. I think the ones that we had our eye on was uh, Jansport because they, they had a dome tent. We, we could kind of tell that dome was the way to go instead of A-frame because there's more volume, you're enclosing more volume for less surface area, blah, 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 and potentially a more stable structure, more uh, wind-worthy and so forth, snow-worthy. And um, uh, so we had the uh, – Bruce said, no, no, it's got to be an oval. And usually, you know, when you're looking at geodesic forms, usually they're these regular spherical or half-spherical forms. And they said, no, 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 this has got to be oval. And uh, so we said, okay, well, let's figure that out. What that meant was we couldn't use a single pole length. We had to use several different pole lengths to affect an oval shape. No, that's okay. But we came out with the oval intention, and Bruce named it the oval intention. And uh, I play on words there, right? And... Uh, you know, that was, that was the origin of that. And it was rocky going at first because we took that thing to a sales meeting and uh, we priced the thing out. It was going to be, I think, where the most expensive tent in our line at that time was $175 maybe. That was the mountain tent where it had snow flaps and uh, frost liner and all kinds of gigaws on it. Well, our tent, our oval intention came out at $235. Ooh, <laughs> how's that going to work? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we took that to the sales meeting. And I, I think, you know, the reception among the reps was a little tepid at first. But we said, no, no, yeah, give it a chance. Go and just show it. Just pitch it for a few people. And, show and pretty soon it caught on. And why? Because it looked unusual. It looked different from any other tent at the time. It kind of had a groovy uh, Bucky Fuller uh, aura about it. And um, uh, it performed remarkably well. I mean, it was, you know, not literally bomb-proof, but I mean, it was really, really very wind-resistant. And everybody's going, wow, this thing really works. What do we got here? And no sooner did we start feeling pretty good about ourselves than the poles started breaking. Mm. And <clears throat> the poles were uh, something that we, a technology we had borrowed from the sport archery industry. Mm -hmm. And there was a, there's an outfit there still on today, Easton Aluminum. Mm -hmm. 
And in those days, they weren't making tent poles. They were making um, hockey sticks and uh, archery, arrows for archery. And they had these leftover lengths from making the arrows that were too long or too short or whatever were working. And so somehow we met up with this guy, Jim Easton, and started figuring, well, gee whiz, maybe we could use this stuff to make tent poles. 70, 7071 T6 aluminum tubing. And gosh darn it, that stuff was, that was ace, man. That was, you could string these things together and everything was wonderful. And uh, so we were just, you know, we were going along 60 miles an hour. And then we get these reports of the tent poles breaking. And we said, well, surely some guy sat on it or there was some excessive load, something fell on it. And the dealer would say, no, I'm sorry. It was sitting on my showroom floor. And the tents broke and the poles just popped. And at that point we thought, Oh my God, what have we got here? I am not, I'm not a metallurgist. Bruce wasn't. We, we called the guy at Easton Aluminum. We said, geez, I don't know. We've never had that problem before because they had never been pulled and hold them in tension the way we were doing. We were making bows out of them, right? You don't do that with an arrow shaft. It's straight as an arrow. And so doggone it, we had to, uh, we were scratching our heads on that one. We went up to the metallurgy department at UC Berkeley and got an audience with a couple of metallurgists up there who said, let's see what's going on here. And they recalled that a similar thing had happened in World War II with uh, ships breaking in half suddenly. And it was due to a phenomenon called stress corrosion cracking, which basically was, in, in our case, something as innocuous as the sweat on your hands rubbing against the tent poles, the sweat, the salt content, I suppose, of the, of the sweat perspiration, infiltrating the molecular, the, space, the, the spaces between the molecules and the metal. I mean, it was microscopic at the molecular level and eroding or corroding the material so that suddenly it would just, boom, it just pop. Mm. And um, then we had to figure out a solution to that. And the Easton guy said, well, let, let's try a little bit different alloy. And then came 7075 T6 aluminum. And that was a little bit softer alloy. And we thought, no, no, it's gonna bend. It's gonna bend too fast and take a set. And it did, it bent a little bit uh, and took a set a little bit faster than we really wanted, but it wasn't breaking that way. And I remember uh, how we were testing these, these poles I had a, uh, you know, those uh, little troughs, if you're a hanging wallpaper and the wallpaper paste goes in it, it's a long, narrow trough, about like, you know, a foot long, something like that, three or four inches deep. And we had one of those and we filled it up with salt water. And then we would make hoops out of the pole sections. We'd make a seven section hoop. We'd make an eight section hoop. We'd make a six section hoop, all different diameters of hoops and then we would set them in the saltwater solution and attach a we had an alarm clock plugged into the wall and we would take a string and attack it to the attach the one end of the string to the hoop 
and the other end of the string to the plug on the alarm clock, plugged into the wall, right? Then we go home for the day. And we come back the next day to see if we had any arms broken. And sure enough, the ones that were really tight, they had broken. But we were able to tell exactly how many hours it had taken in the solution because you could go over and look at this little alarm clock. The power had pulled out, you know, at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And boy, we thought we were pretty darn smart back then, I'll tell you. I mean, I think that's pretty smart. <laughs> well, you know, again, uh, you know, um, everything's kind of everything's kind of ad hoc, you know, right? Well, yeah, it's you're, you're inventing your own testing. That you had in on hand. Yeah, you're inventing your own testing processes. Exactly. I mean, that's 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 the really interesting thing. And I think fast forward to today, it seems like the companies that really push the envelope and push innovation, the innovation, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, right? But um, it seems like the companies that are really pushing it are the ones that invent new processes, right? New ways of testing, new ways of constructing, new ways of manufacturing, right? So you were on the leading edge of that, you know, on on the material side or applying a material in a new way um, and then testing it in in a new way, right? Um, Most people probably sit back and say, I don't know how to do that. You know, and, and well, we can't I don't find know. I was thinking can, right? So. Perhaps some of some of the folks you have entering your program, maybe they've got an engineering background or a chemical chemistry background or something like that, and they would listen to the story I just told and say, "What is that guy talking about? That's not the way we do things." But that's the way we did it then. Right, right. Jan, now a lot of this was happening in '75, and you started with the company in '74. Yeah. Is that right? I was in customer service when the poles were breaking. So people were, were you know, yeah. yelling, at, yelling at you or did you, did you get a lot of bad feedback or were, what was well, that? Well, I think hearing? people were, uh, you know, the job was to tell them that we were taking care of it. And I will, I do remember that we had a huge recall of mm. tent poles. And, you know, I always admired the North Face for stepping up and taking responsibility for the problem. And it was costly. It was very costly, I'm sure. And, um, but it wasn't, you know, you try to fool them. <laughs> try to make them think it's, it's all fine. And, and they admitted, no, uh, we have a problem. Bring all those back. We've got a solution. And uh, so I was in customer service at the time, and, and that's how it was handled. And I will say that the other thing about the North Face, it was very collaborative. You know, that they always sought input. The design department always sought input from customer service or people on the floor or uh, everyone had um, – had input into the process. And so I felt like uh, at the time we were right in the middle of it too. And um, it was a very, uh, it was a very exciting time. (laughs) Well, that idea of a recall, that was unheard of. Yeah, it was very, very, um, it was a bold step. Recalls were something that the automobile companies did, right? Right. Well, when it's a matter of safety, right? I, I think especially when you're creating a product that is supposed to protect people from the elements, 
And who knows, right. I, you know, I, I don't know if you sold this product to anyone who was taking it out into ex- super extreme environments. I, well, anyone, sure. right? Sure. I'm sure you, you did. Um, I mean, this, this is a matter of safety. So it, well, it, and it, it was, is impressive. It was all that. And then, of course, it was a matter of protecting the brand. Right, sure. Because the, the North Face, it was, you know, things were fragile back then. Right. And the last thing we needed was to have that as a black mark on our record. You yeah. know, that our tent, those lousy North Face tents, the poles break all the time. Right. So we were falling all over ourselves to make sure that, uh, to correct that situation. And I'm, like Jan says, I think that's something that the company, uh, uh, should be very proud of. And gosh, I wish more companies these days would, you know, to use the quote, man up, you know, and own up to their problems and not just try to shine them on and hope nobody notices. Right, right. Well, it was a very high profile product for the North Face at the time. Yeah. Um, and its success was pretty important. Crucial. And uh, so, so to have that happen, uh, on those first orders, um, the fact that you know they were prepared to bring them all back—not not the tents themselves, but the poles—we brought the poles back mm. and exchanged the poles once we had a solution. Poles, yeah. Once we had a solution, right? Uh, I'm curious. And another one of these individuals we t- touched on um, Bucky Fuller and his involvement. Um, did did he ever give any any formal contribution to the design? I, I seem to remember, I think Hap showed me a letter. And so there was conversation back and forth. Was there ever advice or feedback or design input? You know, did he take a crack at, at designing some of this? Uh, as you said, no. That was a busy man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, and, you know, he had bigger fish to fry than uh, the little old North Face. Um, he was very generous with his time when uh, he was able to give it to us. And uh, I can remember having, what would you call them, design charrettes or something like that, mm. you know, sitting around and looking at sketches and, and soliciting ideas uh, and bouncing ideas back and forth. And actually, I don't know if you've seen that, but Bruce has got some transcripts of those sessions, which you mm. should ask him about. No, I haven't seen those. And uh, uh, that was interesting. But that was the extent of that was the extent of the collaborate formal collaboration with Bucky. Right. I, I, I know think there was a, there was a, uh, a correspondence going back and forth. Oh, Bucky, we'd love to have you design something for us. But like I said, that's a busy man. He had lots right. of Right. I think that's one of the letters that I saw. It was, and, and his was, response was uh, something to the effect that he'd, he'd love to help where he could. Right. I don't, yeah. uh, and maybe that's, that's what led to the charrette, but yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's, that's really interesting where, so obviously very positive response once a solution was, was presented for the polls. Um, was there a product that you ever worked on really from beginning to end or um, you really felt ownership over um, and you happened to see someone using it out and about in the wild. And, and I've, oh, I've asked well. other designers about that and maybe their first product they ever designed, they actually see someone who bought it and they don't know the person they're not, you know, related or it's not someone who knows someone from the company. It's just someone out on the street. Um, and a lot of the people that I've asked that question, they, they remember the first time that they saw someone using their product. Hmm. 
Well, I guess uh, when I by the time I was involved in the product, um, it was primarily clothing, I believe, that was um, was what I was working on. And I remember the mountain parka and the surprise I had when the mountain parka. Not that I saw any one individual, but that I saw so many hmm. people wearing the mountain parka in all manner of ways. I saw them on the on the streets in Berkeley. Uh, we saw them in New York City when we were on the streets. So I would say the mountain parka was the time when uh, it was a product that I was involved in from you know from its inception till to its production, and uh, it really took off. And seeing that um, in so many different settings was uh, that was something that I remember. I can remember getting. Um, uh, you know, feedback. Photographs would come back. Hey, we use your tent in, you know, 65 mile an hour winds. Here's a picture of it standing up, you know. And you think, damn, that makes me feel good. I, I remember one time, I think it was the, uh, maybe it was the VE24, might have been the Oval. But uh, myself, Bruce, uh, a couple other guys, John McLaughlin and Bob Gorton. Bob Gorton was the retail manager at that time. And John McLaughlin was a finance guy or something. He was, uh, didn't have anything to do with design. And we decided we were going to go on a cross-country trip up in the Sierras. So one Friday afternoon, we piled everything, cross-country skis and tents and packs. And, and Bob Gorton, I remember, he insisted on taking really good Cabernet Sauvignon and these uh, filet mignons. I don't know how he thought he was going to cook those things, but he <laughs> had to have it. And so it wasn't exactly, you know, a real Spartan camping trip. But we park, we, put on, we strap on our skis, backpacks, and so forth, and we start – I remember we were on the eastern slope, and so we start skiing west. And as we did that, it's the sky is getting darker and darker. Now a snow blizzard comes in. We said, "Holy shit! We better pitch, pitch our tents and and buckle down here." And we did, and we got inside those tents. And the snow—I swear to God—must have been a foot of snow, maybe more. Wet, Sierra cement—they call it—coming down, and that tent. I swear to God, I, I stayed up most of the night waiting for the thing to just implode, but it never did. And I remember getting out the next morning and uh, the guy from the retail store says, said to me and Bruce, he said, I think you guys designed a pretty good tip. And that made us feel pretty good. Now, there's another time I saw a guy wearing uh, a, uh, a vest that I had designed. And it's called the Sylvester. <laughs> and we can go into another whole podcast about design mistakes. And, oh, I wish I, the, the designs I wish I had. <laughs> I saw this guy wearing this god-awful ugly thing at the time when we were doing it. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Okay. But later when I actually saw it in context out on the street, I said, oh, my God. I wonder if I should go up and offer to buy that thing back from the guy. And just so I can take it out of circulation. 
I don't think I did. I think he got away from me, but that was a time when I saw my product in use and I thought, hmm, hmm. <laughs> maybe not such a great idea. Well, uh, you know, uh, along those lines, I guess, any other, are there any successes between that 75, you know, the, the release of the Oval Intention and 85 when the Parka comes out? We'll talk about the Parka. In that, the 10 years, that's a, that's a lot of product to come out and probably yeah. a lot of changes at the company. What, what was happening over those 10 years leading up to the release of the Mountain Parka? Um, you know, any, any notable notable events or uh, moments for you? Well, product-wise, uh, you know, we elaborated on the original Oval Intention with the VE23, the VE24, and subsequent. Um, uh, then we kind of veered away from the pure geodesic uh, into some uh, other kind of hoop tent designs. So the tent design thing was evolving, you know, as it was, I'm sure, in every company. Let's try to make this thing lighter. Uh, you know, more compact. Not necessarily, we don't necessarily need to make it more bomb-proof, but we do need to make it lighter. So that was the kind of the design trend that was going on in the, in the uh, tent uh, department. And the sleeping bags, uh, during that period of time, we, uh, we were just getting killed in the marketplace because we didn't have a fiber-fill sleeping bag. And... Uh, these things were coming out, you know, out of everybody's ears, every, every supplier, and particularly the cheap suppliers, Sears and those sort of, you know, had their $29.99 fiber fill sleeping bag. We didn't have a product in that category at all. And so we started uh, working on that. We had a couple of uh, hits and misses. The, the big hit was our, uh, our polar guard sleeping bags because we innovated a different construction method than had ever been used before, which resulted in a, and again, this is this idea of uh, back in the skunk works, right? Let's see if we can tinker with this a little bit and let's put this together this way instead of that way. <laughs> and so what we resulted in was a fiber fill sleeping bag that was, it had to be twice as lofty. And it's because we had this shingle construction method. I won't get into the, uh, the weeds on that, but it was a different way of doing it. And that put us on the map all of a sudden now in fiber-filled sleeping bags. So those were the Bigfoot and the Littlefoot and the uh, Cat's Meow were up in the backpack uh, area. A thing which, I don't know, you talk to North Face people today and they're going to go, oh, geez, that thing was a dog. And I, I guess it was in terms of, you know, purely uh, sales terms or something like that. But it was a product I was particularly proud of, and it was called the Back Magic Pack. And that was something that we worked on during that period that had a flexible uh, joint between the frame, the rigid frame, external frame, and the hip belt itself. So your, your hips had this side-to-side and twisting mobility relative to the pack frame, which we thought was an enhancement, improvement on pack design. And... Uh, uh, maybe ahead of its time, maybe it wasn't executed as well as it could have been. But uh, the back magic pack is something that happened during that period that I was particularly proud of. Um, again, because as it was with the Oval Intention and the um, uh, the fiber-filled sleeping bags, at least our design for them, these are things that we did. Nobody was calling for that. Nobody said, oh, we really need a geodesic dome backpacking tent. 
We just did that. And said, and people said, well, no, we, nobody was saying, oh, you need a backpack that has this flexible joint that's really space agey. So nobody was asking us to do that. But we did it. And so there was this pioneering, uh, I don't know what to call it, bravado or something that we could, you know, create these things out of thin air, even though, you know, we weren't just, re and, you know, Doug Tompkins, a guy from Esprit, he had a kind of a, an adage that he, uh, that I remember very well. He said, we're not in business to respond to demand. We're in, to in the business to create demand. Always what we were trying to do at the North Face during those years. In the clothing area, we uh, kind of dabbled with sportswear for the first time. But that was much later. That was, was that after 85? I thought that was in that period. Oh, maybe it was 85, 86. Yeah. We were, there were, there must have, there was a, a period there where we were kind of, sales are starting to level off, market penetration wasn't happening. We weren't on that upward curve the way we had been. And so we're looking for different ways to uh, uh, keep the thing going. And so we started experimenting with different product areas and different product categories. Skiwear was one. And, uh, you know, you probably, have heard Sally or somebody uh, else in the North Hap talk about, you know, how we applied uh, one of the first applications of Gore-Tex to ski work. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so there was that. Uh, another thing we did is a sportswear. And there was a very talented designer that came on at that time by the name of Gib Mann, Gibson Mann. And a real character uh, to this day, <laughs> and he had worked uh, for um, not Sierra Little, West. Yeah, Sierra West. He'd worked for Rich Kelty and those guys down there. And so he, he had this kind of Southern California thing going on. Uh, but he came up to Berkeley and he joined our design staff and he started creating some really kind of clever, interesting sportswear pieces. And Jan, you helped source this. Right. Yes. That was uh, when we started going yeah. offshore. They, you know, what was happening as often as not, whether it was the back magic or the sportswear or, uh, uh, you know, I can think of some other examples, uh, you know, people reps would say, oh, my God, geez, you guys, what are you doing? You're really you're drifting away from the brand here. Are you sure you know what you're doing? And they're, they're started to develop this kind of skepticism a little bit, which I guess that's healthy. I mean, in the end, nobody got hurt too badly, but it was a kind of a marked difference in the atmosphere around the place. Now you had people second guessing mm. and uh, then you have to navigate that, you know? So I remember there I was, I was still having to stand up in front of the sales meetings and explain these designs to these guys and man, they'd get so skeptical, and I would try my best to, to uh, you know, rationalize a design idea or a product idea for them. I remember at the end of one of those meetings, I was commiserating with Hap, and Hap said, Mark, he says, tomorrow when you go in there, just tell those guys, just sell the shit. <laughs> as if you know that's all you had to do to make these guys that wasn't going to make them happy but it was kind of a an indication of the frustration that was easy to feel in those days right how did um 
I guess with that, during this period of time, I imagine a lot of the changes that are coming and a lot of the innovations that some of that corresponds with your upward trajectory growing within the company. Um, You know, you went from, I imagine when you first took that designer role, were you the lead designer of, of a team of one, you and then, yeah, I was, yeah, I was a one man design team. Yeah. So where, and where did that, what, what were those positions, you know, that during this time that, you know, 75, well, I, I should back up and um, you know, I will, I was nothing without my sample maker. Mm. And uh, then eventually a woman by the name of Ingrid Harshberger mm. hired on and she was a pattern maker. Yeah, Sally that mentioned that I didn't have to. I didn't have to do patterns anymore. I was, I wasn't much of a pattern maker as it turned out. I, I tried, but I wasn't that great at it. And uh, so now we were a three-person department: Hisako, Haskins, Ingrid Harshbarger, and me. And uh, we, you know, stumbled along like that for a year or two, maybe longer. Uh, I think we had to bring on a couple more sample makers. And the point I want to make about that is that too little credit is given to those people. You know, the people behind the scenes. I mean, to this day, if you were to walk into the North Face offices, which I have done several times, and once you get past all the flash, all the, 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 all the big, you know, room size graphics and the, and the entrance foyer, and you walk around there in the back rooms a little bit and you see these people, sample makers or uh, technical designers or they're putting together spec packs. Those to me are the people. Those are the, that's what makes it. That's, you know, I, I rode on those people's uh, shoulders, you know, sure. Maybe I was the front man. And I was, could be glib in front of a sales meeting, but without the other people, it was just nothing. So anyway. Well, it's the idea too, that it's easy to sketch an idea it's not so easy to take that idea and, and make it into a product. Right. And then even once you make it into a product to make it producible. So, um, you know, there are yeah. a lot of steps to the process that yeah, it's a lot of times people don't, don't appreciate. That's right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, now we're uh, entering into the early eighties, mid eighties. As I said, we, uh, made a foray into sportswear. So Hap, or, uh, a Gib Man came on. Uh, then a ski wear seemed to be something that the North Face brand could have some credence in, in the ski market. And so uh, a, now a uh, ski wear designer by the name of Demita Rapp came on. And uh, so by that time now, how big was it? I think we had three or four samples. Well, you had a, you had like a half person and a tent person. And so it was yeah. quite yeah. a large department at that point. Yeah. So I was nominally in the head of the, the design department, but um, uh, there were a lot of other talented, you know, talented designers underneath me. Then um, there was some organizational change that happened in which I was tapped to become vice president of sales mm. and marketing. And I'm not, do you remember what that circumstance was, Jan? I don't remember exactly why they. I don't remember. Uh, maybe it was, was it when Jack went to yeah. uh, Samoa? Yeah. Or <laughs> anyway, I was kind of an empty seat that needed to be filled. So Hap, once again, he comes and says, Mark, 
would you like to be the vice president of sales and marketing? And so I, of course, I said, sure. And then under, in that role, I had the design, design department reporting to me, but I also had three product managers. And that was like herding cats. One of them was Sally McCoy. One was um, Lee Turlington, another interesting guy to talk to. And the third guy was uh, Tom Lane, who was the sales manager for, um, for uh, Skiwer. And there was a fourth guy who Jan and I later went into business with by the name of Tom Mann. And he was, I guess, nominally... He was equipment. He, yeah, equipment uh, sales manager, but he, he, didn't re, he didn't want to report to me. He was kind of his own... On his own, on his own path. So, like I said, I was like trying to herd cats, try to try to get Sally and Lee and Tom all running in the same direction. That was a challenge for me. I was much happier back in the design room. What What year was that? What year was that? Yeah. Well, that would have been. Uh, I left there in 1988. So that would have been in this period leading up to uh, Mountain Jacket. Uh, extreme. You left eighty seven. Huh? You left eighty seven. I left in eighty eight. Then we started. Uh, yeah, <laughs> six of one, half dozen the other. Uh, so uh, that was that was when that happened. Right, right. Um, so the I, company, then the company changed hands. Right, right. And Bill Simon came on the scene. Then we all left. Then we all left. <laughs> so I, I guess before we get into that transition where you where you both step away, Jan, what what were some of the highlights between 75, 85? You mentioned kind of the mountain parka and, and your, you know, connection to that. Um, what what were some of those highlights for you? Well then uh, by then I uh, had moved over to uh, Jack Gilbert decided that uh, the North Face should probably start exploring uh, production outside of the U.S. Up to that point, every product was made in Berkeley. And uh, there was a lot of pressure to make products overseas. So uh, we started with sleeping bag. And so... um, he asked me if I wanted to help him. So Jack and I were involved in getting products made in, um, in Asia. And we didn't even call them North Face. We had our own product name because the North Face didn't want to have any part of awesome. product that wasn't made in the U.S. Right. So we had a little product line called Windy Pass. Mm. And uh, we made backpacks and sleeping bags, and eventually we made some Gore-Tex products. And, um, and then at some point at, in that period, we decided, okay, I think our, our sleeping bags are good enough to put the North Face name on them. So we did like a pilot run and brought in some sleeping bags And our first shipment, of course, it had to be inspected by the North Face quality control people. And they were on heightened alert. They didn't want those things to pass, I'm sure. And um, 
So they started opening the boxes, and I don't think this is probably the way it happened, but it's the way I remember it, that in that first box, they pulled out a sleeping bag, and there was a needle in it. And so, of course, uh, I told you so. I told you none of these products from China were going to be good, and oh, my God. So, of course, that meant they had to open every box and inspect every sleeping bag. And they did that. And that was the only one that didn't pass. Mm. And uh, so, so after that, we were able to, um, you know, bring in more product. And, and that was difficult. You know, it was difficult making that transition from Made in USA to bringing in some products. But we found that down products coming from China. I mean, that's where the down comes from in the first place. Right. So that seemed like a natural. Um, and so that's where we started and um, we had some success and then we expanded that to make more Gore-Tex products and things like that. But where, where could you buy? The, bulk of the manufacturing was coming out of the Berkeley factory. Right. Where, where could you buy Windy Pass? Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good question. Not too many people bought Windy Pass. Windy Pass as a product line was not that successful. Um, we tried selling, you know, it was kind of a, it, it didn't have the North Face name on it. I guess it said yeah. buy the North Face, but it was clearly, um, it was a, um, it was it was not the prime product. Well, it's a way for us to get our dip our toes into the whole world of offshore sourcing. Right. Yes. Yes. Without sullying the name. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure but, that you know, there's there's got to be pretty successful, and and eventually um, the down sleeping bags transitioned to our our manufacturing in China, and. Um, they did a fine job actually. Right. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there's some people out there who would love to find some windy pass sleeping bags. There's gotta be some floating around there. Yeah. There gotta be yeah. some. Yeah. There probably are. Huh. Um, so a- any other high points for you during that time before we kind of get into your transition away from the North face? Well, uh, speaking for myself and not for myself, but the, thing that hasn't been mentioned is the whole advent of Gore-Tex mm-hmm. and the uh, impact right. that had on everything, you know, the entire industry. And <clears throat> I'd like to say that North Face was an early adapter on Gore-Tex. I don't think we were particularly. I think um, Sierra, wasn't it Sierra West that was one of the first? I know early winters was one, right? Yeah. They started to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I wouldn't say we came late to that party, but we came after the party had started a little bit. Mm. And of course, the uh, Gore people were really eager to get uh, the North Face uh, to buy their product. And so there began a, uh, you know, kind of a symbiotic relationship there, which, which uh, you know all too well. Mm-hmm. But out of that came the uh, initial... Uh, kind of backpacking products, the stowaway jacket and the Grizzly Peak. In those days, there were two Gore-Tex fabrics you could get. 
One was a, a 40 denier nylon taffeta, really lightweight. And the other was a, was it a three ply Taslan? Taslan, yeah. A heavier fabric. And so he had these two fabrications and that was it. And <laughs> so once again, it was like back in the old days trying to figure out how do you make a, a backpacking tent out of sleeping bag materials, you know, you, so it was interesting that with the origin of the, um, of the um, extreme gear and then the mountain jacket and those sorts of things, which you might want to talk about a little bit. Uh, every time I would go down to talk to the North Face design department, that's what they wanted to hear about. Where did the black shoulder come from? Mm. Uh, and uh, it was that utilization of the two different fabrications. And the notion was, well, you need a heavy, abrasion-resistant fabric on the shoulders, of course you do. What about backpack straps, right? Blah, blah, blah. And yet you want the, the garment to be as lightweight as possible, so you use the lighter fabrication in other areas of the jacket. Maybe you'd use the heavy stuff on the elbows and the shoulder pads, something like that. And North Face in those days was always very mindful of, uh, of minimizing or maintaining control of stock-keeping units. Because they had their own manufacturing. Yeah, because we were making it ourselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so anytime you wanted to add a color to the line, you know, the production manager, Bruce Hamilton in this case by then, would come in and say, dude, we don't really need a fifth color. Four colors are just fine. We're not going to stock another fifth color of fabric and zippers and snaps and blah, 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 blah. We're going to get a warehouse full of stuff we can't sell. He was absolutely right. And one of the big problems for the North Face during that period of time uh, was carrying all this excess inventory, stuff that they couldn't sell. And that got to be uh, reach almost crisis proportions there for a while. Mm. And, um, but at any rate, so the design solution to that was to cross fertilize again. So, okay, let's have three colors of the lightweight fabrication. Let's have, because the uh, yellow, or what we used to call Acapulco gold, was always kind of a signature North Face color. Red and royal blue. Mm. Those would be those three colors. And for the heavy fabrication, we'd only use one color. Because we don't want to get red, heavy red, heavy royal blue, and heavy yellow. So it was just purely a pragmatic move, trying to minimize and control the number of stock keep units that led to that initial design concept of the predominantly back, the, the black shoulder with the colorful uh, bottom parts. Right, right. Um, well, I, you know, before, before we kind of step into the, you're stepping away from, from the company. Yeah, we've been going almost two hours now. You know I that? know, I don't want to keep you too long. So I guess... Any any last thoughts before maybe we we talk about you know reasons you know you step away or that transition away from the company? No. Well, I you know I think we pretty much covered it. I think what you should get a sense in talking to Jan and me of a company, the North Face company, that existed in a certain time and place. Mm-hmm. And almost like a time capsule. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what I, I have a hard time, I think, 
or I don't have a hard time explaining it, but when I go to talk to North Face uh, people these days, that's like an alien thing to them. They, they don't, and when I talk about, oh, it was a skunk works and we used the same fabric, you know, whether it's a sleeping bag or tenor, but they don't get that. Mm. And so that tells me that we were doing something and we were doing what we, what we had to do. And, uh, you know, there wasn't tons of capital being poured into the company by outside investors. There were a few outside investors, but it was minuscule amounts, more hobby investors than anybody was really trying to make a buck. And so, you know, that was a special time and place. And uh, Jan and I were there at the very, uh, you know, kind of the ground floor, not the ground ground floor back in, you know, the late 60s, per se. But, uh, you know, from 1970 up to 1987, Jan says, 88, uh, pretty interesting time uh, to be involved in that company. Right. So I, I guess, you know, when did you feel like, I guess, what went into um, you feeling like you, it was time to step away and do something different? I got fired. Hmm. That, that has a way of sharpening your... your thought process about what to do next. Yeah. And I did get fired as a technical matter. It's true. But uh, new ownership had come in. Bill Simon, Odyssey International had come in and bought the company for a dime. Mm. And that's another whole story that I I don't feel qualified really to go into. I don't know all the details, but I know it was, it was uh, quite a, quite a bargain price, let's put it that way, that he was able to come in and get, take control of that company. Mm. And he had his way of doing things. And he wanted to make changes. And uh, he considered himself a designer and a great brand creator. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Bill or if he figures into your planning at all. He's kind of an interesting, every once in a while you get these guys that come in from left field. Hmm. And they have this outsized influence on, on an industry or business. He had studied at, Cal, at Berkeley, at Cal, the uh, poetry of Lord Byron. Hmm. And his ambition was to be a filmmaker, but next, but basically he considered himself a, an expert on the poetry of Lord Byron. But if you saw this guy, he just considered himself a real wheeler dealer, kind of a a skinny Donald Trump, let me put it that way. And, <laughs> and just full of himself. And he had these annoying habits of going around talking to my employees around me rather than going through me. And he'd do that with everybody in the company because that was, so, you know, that was just the way we did things. So it became pretty clear pretty fast that he and I were kind of on a collision course. And I... Uh, I accepted that because, uh, you know, I think if, it, if the roles had been reversed, I would have come into a company and I would have thought, well, geez, what is all this dead wood, this old-fashioned way of thinking about things? Let's, let's snap this thing up. Let's get it going. Come on. Come on, people. And so he didn't need, you know, me, an old bump on the log, me necessarily gumming things up or slowing things down. And I, on the other hand, <clears throat> had kind of reached a point where I I was getting a little frustrated in my role as the uh, vice president of sales and marketing. And I, I think on retroflect and, and, and uh, if I reflect on that, I think I was probably 
in a little bit over my head in terms of what the job really demanded and my ability to actually do it. I was very happy in the design room. I wasn't that great at managing sales managers and, and that sort of thing, being a great marketing guy. And so I started thinking, gee whiz, it'd be nice. You know, maybe I'd like to start my own business. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh darn it, that's what I'm going to do. If I don't do it, I, I might do it and fail. But if I don't do it at all, I'll always kick myself for not at least having tried. And so uh, I remember Bruce Hamilton came in, took me to lunch one day. He at that time was uh, president president of the company. And, and Bill had said, Bruce, yeah, why don't you pull your buddy Mark aside here and kind of let him go in the nice, nicest way possible. Mark's been great for the company, blah, 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 but yeah, he's got to go. So Bruce uh, took me to lunch and, and, and uh, delivered the bad news. But between Bill and Bruce, they gave me such a generous severance package it enabled me to start my own business, Ericsson Outdoors. Hmm. And by that, I mean, they gave me a, uh, a severance back, a salary that was more than I expected. And perhaps more significant than that, they gave me a, an Apple printer that I could hook up to my little <laughs> 512K Apple <laughs> <laughs> desktop computer but this is it's this huge monster printer it was like a, one of the first laser printers so I swear to god it was like a $5,000 printer or something like that it's, it's no joke it became kind of the crown jewel of our, of our capital you know our capital structure of our company was this printer sitting in the second bedroom of our house the house we're talking to you from today huh. and uh, uh, so I was, uh, and I remain grateful to those guys for, you know, not just cutting me out and leaving me in the cold, but giving me a little bit of a chance to, uh, to get out and spread my own wings a little bit. And so uh, I had, uh, I didn't have much of a concept really, except I, I knew that I loved design. And I thought, well, maybe I could offer design services to, to somebody who, I don't know, I just somebody. And by that time, of course, I'd managed to build up, um, you know, a list of contacts, other people in the industry. And I remember, for example, that the folks at L.L. Bean, I got along real well with them uh, because the North Face had been doing a lot of private label for them. <coughs> and uh, a fellow by the name of Roger Poor at Eastern Mountain Sports, another seminal character you should talk to. And these guys, um, I, I knew them. They knew me. They trusted me. And so they'd throw me a bone. Here, why don't you try this, try that. And that be, by that, I mean a little small project that I could design and try to execute. And by that, I meant I had to get it made, too. And, uh, you know, uh, how was I going to do that? And, Jan, you can kind of fill in the blanks there because Jan soon came along. You left the North Face on your own terms. Yeah, I did. I um, I left in 89, I think. I thought I left in 88, but around that time. But uh, because I was doing um, sourcing in and production in Asia, um, mm -hmm. 
that's what Bill Simon's whole company was based on. So I knew that I didn't have much of a future with the company once he took it over, that they were going to take over all of the sourcing and manage it through their Hong Kong office. So I decided to uh, quit the North Face and um, Mark and uh, our friend Tom Mann and I started our own company. And so, uh, you know, it was like starting all over again. It was yeah. starting all over again. You know, we were in our in our second bedroom, and um, yeah, we started off in the second bedroom of our house, which, as I said, we're still living in the same house. And then soon uh, we moved in. Uh, we took over a corner of space that um, uh, Bob Swanson and George Marks had down in West Berkeley for their business, Walrus, mm. and. Uh, they they gave they carved out a little corner of, of their warehouse for us, and so we all shared that space together. That was a special time. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I think one of the first jobs we had was um, doing something for Roger Port Eastern Mountain Sports. Well, LL Bean sleeping bags. We LL Bean sleeping bags. That was a big feather in our cap. Yeah. Uh, because you know hmm, LL Bean. And uh, they came to us and said, we need a line of sleeping bags, goose down sleeping bags, and we need you to not only design them, we need you to get the damn things made and deliver them to us. And so that was a great, great uh, start for us. Another, and then I did some kind of odd jobs. Um, I did a little design project for Sportif. USA Sportif USA used to be a sportswear brand, ski wear. They came up with the first stretch short, hiking short. And that's another whole story. That's funny. You remember back in those days where the style was real short, short, and really skin tight. <laughs> kind of goofy looking in retrospect. But I did a few kind of odd jobs like that. But the big one was L.L. Bean, then Eastern Mountain Sports. And uh, uh, then the, a big breakthrough for us was West Marine Products uh, that wanted us to design a foul weather, their top, their top niche in their product offering, uh, foul weather gear for sailing. And Tom and I had done some sailing together, so we kind of felt like we had an affinity. We knew what, this, what was required product-wise. And so we designed uh, foul weather gear, bib, an over jacket, and a couple of other things for them. And uh, uh, started producing that. And then Shades of the North Face and the Oval Intention tent poles. We get a phone call one day from West Marine. Hey, these jackets you sent us, the colors are bleeding. Because we'd made these, it was red on top and white on bottom. White on the bottom is so this two-tone, jazzy-looking. Was it called the Explorer or something, Jan? I can't remember what it Beautiful, beautiful jacket. But <laughs> and anyway, they call us and said, "No, damn it, your colors are bleeding on us. What are you going to do? Because now we don't have red and white jackets; we have pink jackets." And so, once again, I swear to God, our company wasn't more than a year or two old, if that. No money. We had, 
we maybe had two dimes rubbed together, but the whole company, the whole reputation was riding on whether or not we were going to make good on that. And so we thought, well, who can we blame this on? <laughs> and we went back to the guy who had sold us the fabric, the faulty fabric, and he said, oh, no, not me. You know, come on, buyer beware. You get what you pay for. <laughs> okay, thanks, buddy. And we went back to the manufacturer that had actually done the sewing, and they said, oh, no, not us. We don't, we don't test for that sort of thing. What do, you, what do you want us to do? So there Tom and Jan and I probably over dinner one night looking at each other across the table and said, what are we going to do here, folks? And we figured out some way to dig deep. I don't know how we did it, but we made good. We went out and remade those jackets, delivered them faster. Then, you know, we beat the, uh, the revised timeline on it. And I thought, the, sometimes the proudest moments in your life come from when you can, you know, make good on a mistake you've made. And, uh, you know, you're talking about going out and seeing one of your products in the field. And how does that make you feel proud? And there's that, of course. But what made me feel proud was being able to address these problems and then have your customer come back and say, gosh darn it, you did the right thing. That's all I needed. So anyway, from then we, uh, we retained the customer for a while longer, not, not forever. Uh, and one thing led to another. We were just kind of cooking along. We, by that time, had established uh, some contract sewing shops. Well, we didn't establish the shops, but we established relationships with contract sewers in San Francisco, in Oakland, uh, in, down in San Leandro. And there were, I don't know, maybe four, five, six little contract shops, you know, where there's maybe 15, 20 operators and uh, they were called CMT shops, cut, make, and trim. They wouldn't design it. They wouldn't buy the materials. All they were going to do, they would cut it, and they would make it, and they'd trim the loose threads off of it. And then they'd want to be paid. And so we had to figure out how to do all those other parts, which meant managing the fabric inventory and, um, you know, financing the production somehow. And the, the big breakthrough for us was that for the most part, and particularly with the larger customers, we'd go with our, uh, you know, we'd go to our, make our sales presentation. And we'd show this beautiful product that we designed. And uh, then we'd close with, there's one other thing we've got to tell you. We need you to pay, for, pay us up front for this. <laughs> and, you know, they go, what? What are you talking about? No, we need you to put up a letter of credit so that we can take that letter of credit and go over to the factory in Asia, if it was Asia. Usually, if it was domestic stuff, we could, we could finance that out of our own accounts. But the big things, we had to uh, get letters of credit. Well, and miracle of miracles, they were willing to do that for us. And boy, talk about a thing that made a difference. So there we were, we had a business model, which really, we didn't make a single stitch unless we'd already sold it. So we knew we weren't going to get stuck with a whole lot of excess inventory. We had some, inevitably, but it wasn't a huge problem as if we as it had been if we'd been making things on spec. 
And uh, the other thing was that for the large bulk of the production, we had our customer financing it. Mm. So we were, you know, for three folks who didn't have a whole lot of uh, resources behind us, were able to put together a pretty interesting business there. It reached, finally reached a point in uh, uh, late 2000, I want to say late 2000, eight or nine or 10 or something like that. We've reached a point where we had 22 employees and sales, you know, in the several millions of dollars. Hmm. And we're thinking, wow, we're pretty proud of ourselves. Look what we built all on our own. No outside investors, except for our customers, of course. And um, then our partner, Tom, uh, developed cancer hmm. in 2010. Yeah. And that, uh, unfortunately, uh, we lost Tom in 2010. And at at that point, we had all these employees. Jan and I are looking at each other. The business had kind of taken a turn by that point. We had allowed ourselves to become controlled by a single customer. And that was a customer for whom we were making golf jackets, Hmm. golf pants, golf jackets, golf shirts, Titleist Foot Joy. Hmm. And uh, they liked what we were doing. We were making it real easy for them to get into this kind of ancillary business for them. They're interested. They're usually selling golf balls, right? So we opened up this whole different category for them. And uh, so we had a very good relationship there for a long time. And uh, Tom ran that business. And, uh, but things are starting to change. Our other customers, um, Athleta, Title IX, um, LL Bean, they started figuring out how to do those things that we had been doing for them hmm. and charging them dearly for. Well, they got to thinking, no, no, wait a minute. As these, you know, let's say we'd start with an order from, um, from, uh, oh, just, uh, Pick one out of the hat, Land's End. And okay, they give us an order for a thousand pieces, some minimum production run thing. We could make all the fabric minimums work and everything. <clears throat> if that product took off, they'd come back another season. Okay, now we need 3,000 pieces and so on and so forth. At some point, the volumes got to be somebody, the bean counters back there started looking at the numbers and say, How much are we paying Ericsson again? What? what because we charge a percentage add-on on top of the, uh, you know, the direct product costs. And I think that the uh, bean counters there started to say, yeah, maybe we can do this ourselves. How, how expensive can it really be to, to uh, hire a designer? I mean, come on. And we, can, we have contacts over there in Asia. We can do this on our own. And so gradually we saw that our customers were starting to usurp <laughs> or take over the services that we'd been providing. And we start thinking, well, you know, that's, that's logical. That makes sense. We weren't bitter about it at all. And that finally, but when that happened uh, from our, with our biggest customer, we thought, whoa, this is a game changer here. And then, as I said, our partner, Tom, passed away. And so it was kind of a fundamental eye-opening moment for Jan and me, I think. And Jan, you can answer this as well as anybody, but I know... I, in my heart, 
I thought I would really, I've been at this a long time, I was at the North Face for 18 years, we did Ericsson Outdoors for over 20, 21 years, I think it was. And I thought, gosh darn, I've been at this a long time, I just as soon spend my time now having fun with my wife as my partner, not my business partner, my partner in life. <laughs> and so, I don't know, we thought now maybe it's a good time to shut the door on this thing. So we tried to make sure we could find jobs for all our employees. We had this very gradual, this big customer, Titus Fedzoy gave us about a three-year off-ramp. So again, they were very, you know, there wasn't, they just, wasn't a guillotine shop. They said, listen, three years from now, we're not going to be doing business with you. And so that allowed us to transition in kind of a, you know, very logical, sane way uh, for which, again, I'm, I'm grateful. Well, well, I guess with that said, what, what do you look forward to now? Now that, that you're, I mean, you've got to still think about product in a way. Probably don't necessarily want to get into that game, but um, that's probably got to be something that sticks with you. Well, you know, um, I, I, want to, I want Jan to weigh in on this, but again, for myself, you said something at the very top of this uh, meeting, which was that you had hoped your students weren't just and your program wasn't just about making, you know, pumping more product out there. That the product had to somehow mean something, had to do something, had to make a difference. And I contemplated after we closed down Ericsson Outdoors, actually before that, I thought maybe we should start our own brand. What the hell? We've got designers, we got factories, we got the know-how. <clears throat> and uh, I couldn't think of anything that the world needed that wasn't already there and in pretty good, pretty good form. And uh, certainly not in the uh, field of outdoor products. And so I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think I can add very much to this conversation right now. So I determined I wasn't going to do that. And I'm glad that we did not try to do that. Um, I, you know, Jan and I often, sit here at night when we're looking at the COVID news thinking, Oh my God, can you imagine if we were trying to keep those 20 people employed now and maintaining relationships with all these factories and Oh my God, please. No. So, uh, we look, I, I look back on that time with uh, great fondness, but not a lot of regret. And that we're, we're our, where we are now, uh, for myself, I, um, still like to tinker down in my little workshop and so I'm working on um, I'm working on some little kind of crafty types of projects. I'm trying to work on a special type of uh, lamp uh, based off uh, you know who Asamo Noguchi is, the uh, mm -hmm. the famous Japanese designer, and he has these beautiful rice paper lanterns. Mm. He's, ubiquitous are all over and he does some other things so I've always been kind of inspired by that so I'm kind of trying to do a an interpretation of some of the Noguchi lamps the other thing I've taken interest in lately is um, theater and acting and there's a little theater group up the coast called the Sea Ranch Thespians and they need help they especially need male acting talent because there ain't very many people <laughs> my age in the male category uh, of the male persuasion that is willing to stand up and memorize lines and act. Hmm. But I've always had uh, great fun doing that, and I get a great deal of satisfaction from that. Uh, and we had a we were just started rehearsals on a uh, what would have been a pretty interesting play 
when the COVID thing came down in March, and of course we had to shut everything down and uh, we thought, well, maybe we'll get together in the fall. No, you're not getting together in the fall. Well, and now I haven't heard anything about next spring. You know, my fingers are crossed, but gosh. I think you're 2022. Yeah, it could be. And by that time, the play that we were planning on doing, I think, has lost all of its relevance. So I'm going <laughs> to think of something else to do. <laughs> Go ahead, Jan. Well, I have, um, I've actually managed to um, sort of stay connected in the uh, outdoor world. I work for a little company called Slingfin. Oh, yeah. Al Tabor brought them up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I do their, I do the bookkeeping for them and, uh, kind of haven't done much since COVID, but prior to that, I would go down there and, you know, I'd hang out in the office. And so you, you pick up things just through osmosis when that happens. So they're always working on a tent and, They've got a couple of packs that they were working on. So um, so I enjoy kind of just being around that and around people involved in the process. So that's what I've been doing. Well, mention creative growth, Jim. Oh, well, yeah. That, I also, well, there's I was a, trying to connect it to the outdoor business, but. Well, it's not. Neither is theater, particularly. <laughs> true, true. Yes, I volunteer my time at a at an art studio for disabled adults. So, and I I love it. I enjoy it. Um, but again, they're closed down for COVID. So, right. we're, everything's just on hold right now. Right. Yeah, we definitely are in a holding pattern. Well, yes. and, that, and then we have a the other great production of our life is our twenty nine year old daughter, hmm. uh, Emily, and. Uh, I could <laughs> tell you funny stories about when she was a little kid sitting underneath in her little baby carrier underneath Jan's desk down at Erickson Outdoors when we were trying to, we used to say we had two babies, Erickson Outdoors and little Emily, <laughs> and trying to keep both of them fed and going. <laughs> and she's now uh, uh, pursuing a PhD program in entomology. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what happens there. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, well, you know, with with kind of the world shutting down um, in a way, and that that does provide time for reflection. I I, I imagine. Um, well, for a lot of the people that we've talked with, they they say, "Oh, yeah, I get to think about my time in the outdoor industry or my contributions." Um, maybe kind of as a parting, um, you know, question or you know, I'd pose to to you both is when you look back on those times, what what are some of the thoughts and um, I guess where you see yourself in the, in the history of the industry. And um, I guess just what are your thoughts as you reflect back on, on your contributions to the industry? Well, for me, it was, uh, I would say it was um, a real time of, of growth for me personally, you know, professionally. I, I, um, in fact, I, I have um, a friend of my daughter's who's working at Slingfin, and I've talked to him about um, his role there. And the idea that he's working in this small company and is able to, you know, uh, design some product and figure out how to get it sold and solve some production problems, 
I was uh, very fortunate to to be at the North Face when it was this family atmosphere, and um, I had the freedom to get involved in many aspects of business and product, and uh, so it was it was the best time of my life, really. Yeah, for for me, I mean, that's been my career. And I kind of stumbled into it that day, you know, on my bicycle when I saw the big colorful pyres of nylon and uh, heard the little birds chirping from inside the building. And I really, that's what I've done, you know, since, since then has been involved in uh, the North Face or our own business, Erickson Outdoors. I consider myself extremely fortunate, extremely lucky to have uh, been given the chances, the opportunities that I've been given, whether it's been by HAP, or um, I even have to, I, I have to thank this fellow Bill Simon who fired me because he kind of gave me the push, you know, off the log to start Erickson Outdoors, which turned out to be, you know, um, a much more significant career-wise, frankly, uh, for me than the North Face even. Mm-hmm. You know, I can look back on the North Face and the designs and, and all that sort of thing, and it warms my heart every time I see somebody talk about, oh, man, I have one of your sleeping bags from back in those days. It still serves me well. Or I have, a, I have an oval intention, and it's still, you know, I use it every, every camping trip I go on. That just warms my heart, of course. Uh, so I've just been, been one of the lucky ones. <laughs> That's all well, I can say. Well, I think we all are for being able to to work in in this industry, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know this was a long one, yeah. um, but I appreciate you being willing to share stories and in your contributions and your thoughts and feelings. And um, this is fun for me just to to hear your part in all of this. Well, I hope you can make use of it somehow. So oh, not- we we absolutely will. I can guarantee you we'll make a use use out of it. So, sure. um, I think I think we'll call it here. But thank you both for taking the time. Well, uh, thank you. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, and Chase. I, yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.